This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday. Time to check in with our crack strategy panel. And this is the first time we're talking since Joe Biden was declared president-elect of the United States. Justin Trudeau was the first to congratulate him. What does this mean for us? We also had a provincial budget last week after a promise to beef up care and long-term care, but there was no budget allocation for that. And as we went into yesterday, we have CARP calling for the long-term care minister, Marilee Fullerton, to be fired. It also looks like various public health units are pushing back against the government's move to relax restrictions and reopen restaurants and gyms. And we just heard the prime minister urging officials at all levels of government, don't be pressured into reopening. Uh, he even said, hey, if you think that there is some area uncovered by the help from the federal government, let me know. The piggy bank is open. Uh, very interesting, very recent development there. Let me give the numbers out. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi. Uh, well, what, what a week. Let us start with uh, south of the border. <laughs> we last talked on the day of the election, and I'm sure we were all glued to it since then. Charles, uh, <laughs> What's your reaction to Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and, uh, of course, uh, what else, the rest of it there, the rest of the you-know-what show? Well, let the record show that I went to bed early on Tuesday night because I knew you we were in for the long haul. Um, I'm certainly glad and relieved that the results have come in the way they have, and I'm not surprised at all that um, – Donald Trump is being obstructionist and falsely claiming widespread voter fraud. Um, what's remarkable is that his Republican colleagues are uh, almost unanimously backing him up on it. And I think there's there's a number of reasons for that. Um, first, they're, they're all scared of him. They're all scared of being primaried, which is to say effectively losing their Republican nominations to uh, more extreme challengers if they don't toe the Trump line. Um, I think there's a general view as well that uh, reality will set in uh, in the absence of really conclusive evidence that there's been widespread coordinated state-by-state voter fraud, um, that the American political system is geared to recognize the results of elections and of the popular will, and that eventually he will have to uh, step aside. Or there's... um, there's a third option, which is that Trump is planning something more extreme, uh, whether it's uh, invocation of the Insurrection Act, whether it's uh, 
a solo declaration that the that he considers the results of the election null and void. But the more this drags on, the more it's possible that we'll have two people showing up to be sworn in on inauguration day. <laughs> John, <laughs> well, look at just because the main news networks declared a winner doesn't necessarily make it so, according to the Trump campaign folks. But um, no, look, I, uh, I I think we, we've talked about it on the show before the, the whole issue of whether or not Biden wins and whether or not Trump would would accept that, and and, and we knew that if it was close as it was. Uh, that he likely wouldn't, and and as it's playing out now, he's not accepting it. Um, I, I think it's not a that things. close, though, John. Well, you know what? I, I guess it's not in in some some ways, but but the Democrats were 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 predicting a blowout. So from that perspective, they they expected the Senate to be changed. They expected the Congress to be strengthened. They expected you know the, the president, the Democratic president, to win. So from that perspective, it was close. And when you look at a number of, of you know percentage points here and there on some of the writings that we some of the writings sorry some of the districts and some of the states that we looked at we talked about how you know it was going to come down to like a handful of of, of uh, you know districts out of three thousand plus districts so it is close from that perspective but but you know I, I, I'm my only issue here is that I think the further this this debate happens and this controversy happens the worse it is for for the for Americans in general when it comes to democracy and, and what it's doing for the Senate and, and all the, the races that are still yet to be called, quite frankly, not only in the House, but, but a couple of the key ones in the Senate in Georgia, which can determine the balance of power in the Senate. So all that to say is, I think it's unfortunate. I think what it does is actually ruins the brand of the Republican Party uh, for, for any future leader that comes in. And I think the more this goes on, uh, the more the damage it does. And I've always been a party person first. You know, leaders come and go, but but the party is always there. And I think that you should always do what you can to protect the brand of the party, because that's what's going to happen. That's, that's what's going to sort of take it, take it into the next election, no matter who the leader is. The party brand is always first and foremost key. Well, yeah, and uh, they haven't been having much luck in the courts. There's no basis to most of these lawsuits. Um, Charles, uh, I, I, I have to admit, I, out of all the thousands of things I've read and watched, I have not seen a prediction that Trump Trump might use the Insurrection Act. Oh no, it's been it's been speculated on. Um, it would be a highly unusual. Move, but I mean, part of the problem, Libby, is that the that which we would define as transition, um, a losing president making way for a winning president, or a president whose two terms is up. A lot of this is defined by not by law but by convention, which is to say, there are certain norms. You know, um, the first lady outgoing has tea with the first lady incoming. Uh, the transition team for the new president coordinates with White House officials. Uh, the uh, and and these are things that have happened for centuries, and it's a very very important part of the process. And the fact that it's not happening now that Trump is refusing to allow any form of transition activity uh, is a big problem, and will continue to be a big problem. And and let me be clear: I think Trump is a pig. I think he's a re- he's just a reprobate of a human being. How, but at the same time, he got 70 million plus votes. And Republicans are shaking in their boots at any notion that Trump might turn on them and declare them unworthy or, or not in his particular orbit. Uh, Bob Woodward called his first biography of Trump fear, because that's how Trump operates. But the reality is that he lost. 
he lost big. He lost by bigger margins in key states than he defeated Hillary Clinton by four years ago. And so the inevitability of the situation comes headlong into his own disbelief as to the result. But also, there is a very good chance he will end up in prison. The Southern District of New York and federal, and federal prosecutors there are drooling at the prospect of getting at him for tax evasion. And Trump knows the minute he's out of the White House, he is highly susceptible. And he's got very few cards to play now, and he knows it. Well, yeah. uh, I'm not so sure about that. Karen, what's your take? Yeah, I, you know, we know Trump is petulant, and we know <laughs> that he's a sore loser, and we know that he's um, a narcissist that creates his own reality in the face of what's actually happening. So, you know, none of none of this behavior is unexpected, to John's point. I mean, we all knew that if he lost, he wasn't going to willingly go into the night. He told us that. He told us that. <laughs> so and there should be no surprise that he's behaving the exact same way that he said he would. I mean, I guess the only surprise is he typically behaves so erratically. This time he's actually doing what he said he was going to do. Um, but, you know, and, and again, it, you know, it is custom. It's convention. It's not the law. But, you know, on de- December the 14th, they, I think it's December the 14th, the Electoral College will vote, and uh, there'll be no, nothing left to debate. And so, you know, even Fox News is encouraging Trump to accept the results and move on. He's not going to concede. but He's some- mad at Fox News. I mean, that was quite something to see uh, at Fox News anchor cut off Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary, as she was uh, going on like uh, of false, making false statements. To watch, actually, that whole scenario when, in fact, they were calling Arizona, actually, literally, as, as uh, I was watching it between a number of stations, but I was watching Fox at the time, and, and Bill Hemmer, Hemmer was at the board uh, going through a number of states and then realized that, that, that Arizona turned blue for, for Biden, and he actually went to the desk and said, did we just call Arizona? <laughs> and, and when they did, they were literally getting calls from the Trump campaign as they were on air saying that they should revoke the, uh, the call. It was incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, it's bizarre. We all knew it was bizarre. And, you know, so the, the madness, you know, the madness is coming to a conclusion. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I think, I think the, you know, at some point the Republicans are going to ha- stop being afraid of this man. I mean, I think the worry now is he's going to buy his own news outlet and then spend the rest of his days targeting individuals. And nobody wants to be on the other end of that, which, you know, quite frankly, is a good self-preservation strategy. But as John said, there is a bigger picture out there and there is the brand of the party. And, you know, the country... It, yeah, but they don't want to lose those 70 million people that like Trump. Correct. And, you know, the country is divided, but it's not it's not divided. I mean, there's varying degrees of people who vote a Republican. Some people vote a Republican because they're Republican, not because they love Trump. Or they love, they liked aspects of the um, agenda, but not that but they didn't. Maybe they revile the man as a human. But that being said, that there's still a, a 70 million people who have a different view of the world. And... I, I think that there is room to bridge that gap. It won't be overcome overnight, but you know, I think that if the Republicans do understand that Trump is no longer, I mean, I think they're in some sort of um, abusive relationship with this man. As soon as they cut <laughs> ties, <laughs> then they can get on with their lives. And you know, again, I think Trump will fade away. And I don't, you know, all of his threats and bluster eventually will blow into the wind and we'll be able to get on with things. Well, and Libby, if I can just if I can just add to what Karen has said, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that they had a lunatic at the top of their ticket, the Republican Party ran a highly effective, highly responsive campaign. And one of the things they were able to just lambaste the Democrats on 
was the whole notion of uh, socialism, which obviously played to key demographics, nowhere more so than Florida, but also um, scared a lot of people in terms of, um, you know, what they could expect from a democratic administration. And, you know, full credit to them in that regard, because the Democratic Party left itself open to that kind of thing. But the only other thing I'd say is, you know, in in 2008, um, Americans gave the Democrats the House and the Senate and the White House. And in 2016, they gave Trump the uh, House, the Senate and the White House. This time around, they've decided on split government and they've decided on the inherent checks and balances that go with the American political system, and and full credit to them for doing so. Well, we have to see the results of those Senate races. John, uh, I think uh, that by some of those standards, the Canadian Conservatives would be considered socialists. Well, (laughs) of course, and and I think a lot of folks, uh, even now, in the post-analysis of the election in the U.S., have said that, even Republicans have said that the U.S., not like not, not no different from us. They're not a country of extreme right or extreme left. You know, they're they're a center left, center right um, uh, country as we are. And I think that that sort of plays. <laughs> I don't in, think so. <laughs> anyway, well, you know, it, but it, it is in some cases though, and and how they look at things. But but given some of the radical folks they've got on either side of the spectrum for either party over there, um, you know, we, we even at the most right wing from our our side or the most left wing on our side. Uh, it does. It pales in comparison to uh, to what some of the some of the factions within the U.S. political system are. <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's certainly true. Uh, before we move on to local stuff, I mean, uh, Trudeau was the first person to congratulate Biden. Uh, not all of Biden's policies are going to be great for Canada, but but it, it's it's going to be a little more normal to to deal with him, right, Karen? I I think so. I think there's just a a sigh of relief that there's some predictability. And, and, you know, what we talked a little bit about last week is that I don't really think that there is a full agenda with respect to Canada, but at least uh, Trudeau can begin to shape that agenda, whereas with Trump, it, it was not possible. So I think that there is a new opportunity to, to begin dialogues that weren't possible under the former administration, which is, again, helpful and uh, useful. Do you think that we have a better chance of getting our captives back from China under a Biden administration dealing with China? No. No, because I, I think that uh, Trump was politically motivated when he had her arrested. And uh, I don't I, and I don't think Biden shares that same political motivation. Yet we're now all in a in, we all have a problem. Well, we actually the United States doesn't have a problem. We have the problem. So we're going to have to figure out how to solve it. Do, does anybody disagree with Karen on that? The, the only thing I would say uh, is that I, I do think that there might be better negotiations with China with Biden, because there's no question that China wanted or was much more supportive of of a Biden presidency than a Trump presidency, um, only because of the fact that with with Trump there was so much you know issues that were going on that were just not predictable or or their toughness uh, with respect to how they dealt with China and the fact that that there was you know even when he was vice president uh, Joe Biden had a relationship with China that was at least different or at least a bit more uh, I guess workable or manageable so there I think there might be some discussions that might be had but I think it's broader than just. And I think Karen's point is right here. It's broader than just 
the fact that they've got a good relationship with the leadership and with Biden. Uh, this issue, you know, deals exactly with with Huawei and, and how that's going to do it. And I'm, I'm not sure the U.S. are going to change their perspective on, on how that's being dealt with. Okay, uh, let's move along to local things. Very interesting uh, comments from the Prime Minister just minutes before we went to air, because my perception as of yesterday, I mean, we, we got last week the province's new coded system, the bottom line of which is that they, they, they want to help people reopen and they're hoping to do those safely. My, my perception was public health units are pushing back against that. And we just heard the prime minister say, uh, people don't give in to pressure and reopen too soon. Look at what, what's happening with the case numbers. Uh, Charles, how do you see that? I don't, uh, I don't blame the prime minister for, for taking that particular tact at all. I mean, as, as we've talked about for months now, um, the virus is the boss. The virus is the one that decides how soon we're able to reopen our economy safely. And one of the challenges that's been faced by Doug Ford and which he will continue to face comes not so much from Ontarians as it does from his own party and his own caucus and his own cabinet, which is something of an ideological sense that Boy, we've we've screwed. We've tapped down the screws too much, and we should allow restaurants to open, and we should allow gyms to open, and you know we've just got to learn to live with the virus, which is insane, right? It's like learning to live with a cobra. You don't, and so that kind of pressure is is corrosive, and it is ideologically based, and it could be enormously bad for the economy because you, all you have to do is look at the number of cases in Ontario and in Toronto to realize that we have a big problem on our hands. Um, Plus, you know, we've got a lot of, uh, we've got the colder weather coming, notwithstanding the last few days, a lot more people inside, Christmas coming, and just an inevitable huge number of family gatherings and the very real potential that in the new year this thing could explode on us. Karen, uh, how do you see this, and are you worried that you might be shut down again? Oh, I'm still shut down. I'm a gym, so I can offer some recreational programming, but 70% of my business is shut down right now. And so, you know, just, just to, from another perspective, is that I've, we haven't had any outbreaks at my gym. We have 178,000 square feet and 50 people in this, or in this building at any given time when we're allowed. And so I have to wonder where the risk is in this building relative to a grocery store relative to other um, businesses that are able to stay open, relative to factories that are able to continue to operate. Um, so from a, you know, not, and I, I, don't, I don't believe we should, you know, I mean, the virus is with us, and I do believe we have to live with it in a risk-based approach. And I'm not suggesting that we just go willy-nilly and just open things up. But the reality is I've been closed for four weeks, and the numbers are still going up. So my question as, a, as someone who's running this business is, where is the transmission happening? Because it's not happening at gyms because we've been closed. Well, and yeah, so it's... I think it is fair to question public health to say, what is your data revealing in terms of a strategy to actually combat the virus? Because I don't think the virus is in charge. 
I think we have tools at our disposal to aggressively target it in a way that maybe we haven't been fully utilizing. And, uh, you know, it seems to me that the the places of transmission are different in different areas. In Peel, it's uh, personal gatherings. Right. And in Toronto, I think it is restaurants or bars or whatever, um, and, and not much in gyms other than that Hamilton one. And Hamilton didn't even get shut down after that. John. Yeah, you know what? I'm far more in, in, in line with um, with Karen than I am with Charles on this. I think that we, you know, we, we've been at this now since March, uh, and we're now coming. To, we're now nearing end uh, year end, and, and certainly there's no there's no uh, sort of line in sight here with respect to how we're going to be able to cope with this. So I think we've we're all starting to deal with it. We're all starting to live with it in a way that is much more risk uh, sensitive, and, and governments are still trying to grapple with. The need for for health and, and ensuring everybody's health care, with respect to also making sure that the economy is still uh, rolling. You know, we can't we can't come to a complete shutdown yet again. We just can't do that. And I think that their governments are trying to come up with some ways of being responsible by saying, look, if there's more data now that we know this virus, now that we know where it's where how it's being dealt with and, and whatnot, that there's ways of being able to deal with it in a way that's responsible. And I think that there are restaurants, I've been to a number of restaurants since, you know, since the stage two and now modified stage two. And I got to tell you, every restaurant that I've gone into is exceptionally careful with respect to what they do. They clean, they, they take your number down, they track, they trace, they're, they're always wearing masks. You can't leave the table without a mask. You can't be more than two or three people at a table. So there's a lot of responsibility. Now, of course, there's always exceptions to that. But I think that if you shut down restaurants, you're going to force people to have mm-hmm. social gatherings in person. Yes. At least if, if, you have, if you have them in restaurants, there's at least some way of being able to trace and track them and also some way of being able to control them. And I just think that you shut those down, you're going you're gonna to ask for people, especially when you get close to Christmas, for more social gatherings. And that's where the spreads are going to happen. You know what? That's an interesting point, John. And I, I, I think you're, you're right. And, uh, you know, um, I, I know that even meeting people now, well, in Toronto, there isn't really any place to meet them except on a patio. And uh, the alternative will be, you know, come to my house. Yeah. 100%. Oh, Lord. That reminds me of the old, somebody saying, oh, boy, I hear you can get pregnant through your clothes. And the other person saying, well, we better take our clothes off then. <laughs> Um, it's just, it just, it just, it just doesn't ring true. I mean, restaurants, the nature of restaurants is to gather people together who don't know each other. And that is the inherent risk of restaurants. And, and I have every sympathy for Karen, um, but it's true of gyms as well. And, and that is the problem when you are bringing people who, who are strangers to each other, um, that's where you lose the ability to track and and, you know, I take it that I get it that restaurants and gyms are recording who's there, et cetera, et cetera. But it's an entirely different situation from families getting together. And, and frankly, I, my sincere hope is that most families will act responsibly um, and really try to keep their numbers as small as possible and um, recognize that we are sitting on top of a volcano here that could very well go off. I mean, that is we have 240,000 dead people in the United States since March. Those are serious numbers. And obviously, they have nine times the population we do. But look at our numbers by comparison. We are so much better off. Well, that's, that's a cultural thing. But and that we're not comparing ourselves to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, we're the worst in the Why world. I mean, we should. 3% of transmission has been in gyms. 3%. Okay. 
And, and I would and push so, back, Charles, and but, say that so it's not so much the restaurants that is the bars. Right, I, the bars. I'd say the bars are far worse, and I think that, you know, the strip clubs and Absolutely. all the other issues. Those are shut. Of, and know. they're shut, and they should stay shut. Yeah. Yeah, folks, I mean, really, it, it, the problem is much bigger than that. The problem is that when you gather people together in set, defined indoor spaces where folks don't know each other, you the, the inevitable result, given the way this virus is working, is spread. And there is only so much that can be done to mitigate that spread. And when we've got numbers coming in close to 1,500 a day in Ontario, that's all of the sirens going off simultaneously. Right? That is big-time growth. And we're going to be, uh, and if we're not careful, we'll be looking to, at three to 5,000 new cases. And then we can come back and revisit the conversation. Okay, John, do you think that uh, we're going to end up with another lockdown? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think that it was, it was devastating enough for a lot of folks, not only from the perspective of mental health and, and just having to deal with, with, with business closures and all the, all the associated uh, uh, tragedies that happened with it. I think that we're going to continue to do it with a staged approach. I think that the governments are going to be smarter by way of how they're going to monitor some of this stuff. And I also think there's going to be a vaccine that's going to be widely available in the next couple of months, which I think is going to be very, very good news mm. for all of us. I, I I don't know how much will be available in Canada in the next couple of months, even if that vaccine gets passed. Uh, Karen, uh, I will give you the last word. So you're only partially operating now. What do you see in your future? Well, in my future, I do see that... Um you know, there's certain gatherings that should just not be permitted. And I think Peel is right to say weddings. Like, there just can't be wedding receptions. There can't be large uh, family gatherings. There can't be large groups of people coming together because that's when the rules are not followed. That's when there's not social distancing. Because fundamentally, we do have a public health uh, position and a, and, and a response. But there's also the human psychology sociology, economy. There's lots of things at play here. And if, you know, if for, you know, for six or eight weeks, everybody could do, you know, follow the public health rules religiously. But the reality is people, um, they, they do need social interaction. They need their families. And uh, restaurants actually are not places where strangers congregate. Restaurants are places that you go with your family and friends that you know. And I think that there are safer ways to have interactions and the safer ways to have them are not in your home to be candid, to be, but to be in areas where you are following the social distancing and the physical distancing rules. So I, I think that there is work that we still need to do together. And I also don't think it's fair that if you just disagree with something that you're labeled a denier. I think we have to find a way to have conversations about the strategic way to be dealing with this without being labeled as someone who doesn't believe the virus is serious. I believe the virus is serious. I also believe there are different ways to deal with it. Okay. On that note, we have to wrap things up. Uh, this is a conversation that we are obviously going to continue. I hope we continue it as we see cases go down, but I'm not sure that's the way things are going. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, John Capobianco, and Charles Bird. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.